happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 255 on April 6, 2022. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus uh, uh, right here in Missoula, Montana, in uh, the western part of Big Sky Country. And joining me tonight, as always, Good evening, Dr. Russ Fryer. How are you doing tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am well, joining you from Oklahoma City, and I am the Technology Integration Innovation Specialist for something like 59 days. I think as of uh, yesterday, we are 60 days out uh, from graduation. So, yeah, looking forward to a little move to North Carolina, and like we've mentioned, probably a a bump up an hour um, for you. So my, my 9 p.m. will will be an hour earlier with UTC. So anyway, but that probably is not going to happen until June. Nobody's bought our house yeah. yet, sold or it showed two more times today. So, you know, if anybody's looking for a four-bedroom house in northwest Oklahoma City, you can just push them our way. We'll be happy to uh, sell our house to you. There you go. But, um, what are we talking about tonight besides houses? We haven't even talked about the weather, so, you know. No, no. By the way, it, uh, it did have a really weird snowstorm on Monday night. Um, I received an emergency notification saying that a, a snow squall was heading in our direction. And at first I was like, there's not going to be a you know quick run snowstorm. And then four minutes later, it was dumping snow in Missoula. Uh, so it's kind of what springtime is like, uh, particularly in western Montana. But... That's not what we're here to talk about tonight. I believe we have several, actually it looks like quite a few articles uh, tonight. Uh, both Wes and I brought our article A game, but we have some tech correction articles, some Ukraine-Russian, uh, Ukraine-Russian? Ukraine-Russia war articles, uh, some Microsoft and Google news. Um, I have a story to share tonight about family technical support, um, some creation news, a personal technology news. Um, uh, our miscellaneous or potent potable category. And then, of course, we'll end tonight uh, with our Geeks of the Week. Dr. Fryer, do you have a preference on where you'd like to start tonight? Well, I did actually add a few articles tonight. I think we should start with the tech correction because we have neglected the tech correction <laughs> for two weeks. And I've I've personally felt it deep in my heart. So um, let's see. Why don't we let's start out with. <laughs> Uh, this BBC article from April 3rd, Trump's Truth Social app branded the disaster. Well, first of all, we probably should say, if you haven't listened to the show, you may not have any idea what the tech correction is, but that is Jason's term for the impending, we think, maybe, um, regulation and and sometimes, and probably also just pushback. And um, there's certainly a lot of conversation constantly about whether or not tech platforms need to be regulated. They've gone too far. They have too much power. Surveillance capitalism needs to be ruled in. Privacy law needs to be passed. All of these things we, we term the tech correction. Big tech could also be you know, termed this. So <clears throat> BBC News reported on, um, uh, I guess it was three days ago, so it would have been the 3rd of April, um, that President Trump's formally endorsed Truth Social app has really just been a dismal failure. Um, there are thousands and thousands well, actually, this person who wrote the article is number 1,419,000. Uh, there's a waiting list of over half a million, of one and a half million people, one and a half million people. Um, it launched on February the 21st. It was professing to 
you know, not be a censored, you know, platform, which is, which is silly because all social media platforms are going to have to have some level of content filtering and content um, censorship. But um, anyway, this was going to, you know, be targeting um, the, the Trump crowd and the more conservative folks. And evidently they just haven't been able to get it together uh, scaling their, their app. And so it says the experts are baffled. Um, they had predicted they'd be fully operational at the end of March. Um, you know, they, they've partnered with this uh, website rumble, which I'm not really familiar with. I was supposed to provide the critical backbone for the site's infrastructure. And um, you know, it's just uh, causing all kinds of, of angst that, that people are having. So Anyway, that was one article um, about uh, a alternative platform to what we have now with, you know, primarily Facebook and Twitter. There's obviously other platforms, too, but those are, I think, the two of the primary ones in terms of <clears throat> spreading um, all kinds of um, political news and assorted uh, links and issues that relate to um, not only the polarization of society, but also in some cases, you know, weaponization of, uh, uh, of different platforms. Um, Elon Musk is thinking about building his own alternative platform. And so this was Reuters on the 26th of March. And they report that, um, of course, as he usually does, you know, Musk will share a tweet. And so there's a lot of articles um, about that. So he was re uh, responding to a Twitter user's question on whether he would consider building a social media platform consisting of an open source algorithm and one that would prioritize free speech where propaganda was minimal. Um, and he he said that, you know, he was sending a poll out to users and that was going to be important. And, you know, please vote carefully. Um, I will note that Mastodon is an open source federated uh, social media platform, much like Twitter, but federated in the same way that email is federated. So any of us can run our own email server because it is not something that is proprietary. So I thought those were two interesting articles that, you know, are suggesting that maybe we're going to have some alternatives, but there's nothing yet that seems to be viable and with network effects which means sort of the, the, the big get bigger and it's very difficult for newcomers to really break in. Um, it is going to be very, very challenging for anybody to um, break into the social media landscape. So any yeah. thoughts on that, or would you like to share any of your tech correction articles? Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the biggest thing for me is that, you know, let's ignore the, the, the political nature of this. The bottom line is, is that I do feel like that the web's attention is pretty fickle. And uh, I, you know, I tried to get on Truth Social um, in part because I am interested in the story. And, you know, there is a lot of hand-wringing right now about um, uh, 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 social media platforms. And I guess I, I do find it somewhat ironic that, um, it, one of the things I do think the left and right can agree on is that we're all pretty unhappy with social media right now, maybe for different reasons, but we're, we're all not feeling very, very, uh, uh, served by these platforms. And, you know, I'm not saying that Trump's truth social platform could be the one that brings everyone together because it's clearly not the way it's being angled, but at the same time, um, 
you know, it's not going to work if people can't quickly get on there and get to a a mass, right? Because, you know, the article refers to that they were uh, 1.4 million in line. That's further than I got. I wasn't able to get an invite at all. Or actually, that's not true. I did get an invite and the, the link was broken. So I stopped trying a couple weeks back and, um, and so I did it again and, uh, still didn't have any success. Um, apparently there are a lot of, uh, right of center thought leaders that have moved there, but if they're just, I mean, it's, it's the, it's the extra definition of an echo chamber, right? Like it's, it's not, uh, if there's a limited number of people on there, people will get bored and leave. And that's where what I don't really get is that it, it just seems to me that there are more savvy social media uh, 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 consultants that could have helped the Trump organization come up with something that was more robust than this. And that, that's that's the disconnect for me. Right. Um, several months ago when, uh, you know, Trump was going to launch his own social media thing on his website and it ended up just being a, a Twitter like clone where you could press a button to tweet whatever uh, uh, former president Trump had said. And like that wasn't very uh, big. And, and apparently there was a lot of money and time that went into the development of even that, which I'm 99 percent sure uh, uh, one of the two of us could probably put something up pretty similar, right? Like on WordPress and have it work out just fine. There's just so many disconnects to this, this story that I have a hard time working around. Um, the, the other thing about, uh, uh Elon Musk is that, and, and I can't remember if I added, or I did do articles, uh, on this. Um, so he tweeted out, uh, the other day that, uh, well, he's been tweeting some, some criticisms of, of Twitter. And in fact, um, has, uh, um, suggested several times over that there's a censorship problem at Twitter. And if I remember correctly, and I may be wrong here, that he also referred to some, some First Amendment, uh, uh, issues, which of course is very problematic because the First Amendment does not guarantee your right to tweet. Um, it guarantees your right that the government can't, uh, restrict your speech, but you have no right to, uh, uh, a tweet. You have no right to post a, a post on Facebook. You have no right to add a comment to an article. You are beholden to the corporation of the terms of service that you signed when you signed up for an account. That's the way it works. And, uh, you know, the difference between, you know, perhaps now and 50 years ago is that if you're denied access to, to, uh, mainstream resources now, it's pretty effortless to put up your own web page or your own easily accessible place on the internet where you could say whatever you like. Um, uh, uh, without a ton of, 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 of pushback, but Elon Musk has been interested in being more of the conversation on Twitter. He's now on the board and he also owns 10% of, or it's just under 10% of, of, of Twitter stock, which makes him the largest, uh, stock owner in, in Twitter. And, th- you know, that there, there's some limitations there. And I, I don't recall what the source was. I think NPR mentioned this the other day that he's limited to 15% ownership overall as a member of the board. I don't know if that's a, a federal law thing or if that's related to the, the board member policies for Twitter, but he, he has been asking for input. And then um, uh, I can't imagine this is based on, on Elon Musk's uh, complaints, but um, Twitter has also uh, 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 announced that for over a year, they've been working on an edit feature, which is an oftentimes uh, requested uh, piece of, of Twitterdom. Um, and, it seems like Mr. Musk might try to take credit for that because he did solicit that kind of feedback, but that's the, that's the article from uh, yesterday's uh, verge. So 
I know it's a weird, weird time to be in. Well, it's a weird time, but um, it, it, watching this play out is, is super fascinating to me. That is, that is so interesting. You know, I post regularly on, on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm regularly editing my posts on Instagram and Facebook because they're longer. And yep. anyway, I'll just have, you know, something I need to, to fix. But with the tweet, you know, it's always, oh, I got to delete that. And it doesn't happen that often, but, you know, you can't edit it. So you delete it. So that, that'll be a substantial, um, I mean, I, I think it's fine. When they, when they doubled the, the length of the tweet that you could do, you know, that was, that was interesting. And, and I think that was positive. But yeah, um, I, I very much think so. And actually, you know, I like Twitter and, and I, I think I've even said this directly on the podcast before, uh, Dr. Fryer and I would not be friends minus social media that yeah. we may have run into each other, uh, because we, we did end up meeting, uh, after getting to know each other on Twitter, uh, in, in Montana. So, you know, who knows, but you know, it, it's really been a critical lifeline for my relationship with other ed tech professionals, because especially in the era of no conferences, this is how I stay up with folks. Right. And, um, you know, and, and I don't, um, and I have another article to share tonight, uh, that, that's somewhat related to this topic, but, um, you know, there's clearly problems with these platforms, right. And, and, and there is incredible dissatisfaction. And I would also say distrust of these platforms as well, but there's no denying that we crave the social connection. If we can't, the only way this is going to work out permanently for these platforms, however, is if they can spend time figuring out a way to make them more human and not just be a place where people go to be cranks. And that part, I think, is 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 just, it's hard to know how to do that. Yeah, um, I think I mentioned it last week, and I'm sorry, everyone. I'll I'll get the uh, the show from last week posted with with show notes, uh, hopefully tomorrow. But um, Ethan Zuckerman, who's a, just a fantastic thought leader on all all things big tech and and tech correction, was on an EFF podcast called How to Fix the Internet, and um, what he said, and I think he's kind of come to this conclusion. Is that it just, we're going to have to have smaller communities. You're going to have to have smaller communities policing their own content um, where we don't have to try to come up with generalized rules for the world, right? Because that, in his view, and, and I'm kind of thinking maybe this is correct, it's just crazy. You can't make a rule that is going to, I mean, I don't know. It's like, are we going to still have a United Nations with with Russia doing what they're doing now. I don't know. It's hard to get, you know, the world together to agree on things. And we have been able to do that in, in some cases, but um, it could be just a, you know, too, too, too big of a challenge. So. Yeah, absolutely. And okay. Then, so two, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and I want to kind of pr pr present uh, maybe a deeper article on what I just mentioned. There's a really interesting article from CNET, um, on August 5th, uh, Shelby Brown is the writer and how do activists use social media for good. And you can too. And, um, I'm seeing more of these articles and I think that it's, it's an important topic. And I, and I like that it's starting to become part of the broader discussion of, of social media, but basically, um, this article, uh, uh, it talks about how important social media has been to several important social movements in the United States. Um, and everything um, um, 
uh, everything seems to suggest that, you know, even causes uh, well, really both sides of, of, of the political spectrum. Um, um, I, they're really important, right, to both sides. And, and social media is such a way we connect. Um, and also it's effortless to connect that way, right? Um, the, the statistic they, 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 they talk about is that in 2020, about one third of social media users report using platforms like Facebook or Twitter to show support for a cause, look up rallies or protests in their area and encourage others to take action uh, uh, regarding important issues, according to Pew Research Center study. Uh, a third of um, social media users would be in the United States, you know, well over 100 million people say that they have accessed um, uh, 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 you know, information regarding you know, social movements, social protesting, uh, exp- expressing displeasure via social media. And there is no other medium that would allow you to connect in this way. But what I like about this story is that um, uh, there is there's actual suggestions here, right, uh, that, you know, uh, social media should not be your only tool. Um, you should seek engagement. Don't don't do copycat pieces, go to the root of the movement, right? Uh, just because you saw a meme about it, that's not really getting engaged with an issue, but rather finding organizations with people that share your thoughts and causes uh, is, is pretty important. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and take action beyond social media, right? Like that, that's a piece that helped make your action more effective. We talked about this in, in context of that reply all story from, I think it was last year that, um, uh, people were talking about how terrible some multiplayer online games are because bots have taken over and totally given unfair advantage to those with bots. Uh, and the answer to it was, was not to quit playing the game, but find only people you already know to play the game with. Don't go on a public server, go on a private server with people you know. And, uh, the, the, uh, a host of the program said that, but I don't have friends, uh, you know, that, that play this particular game. And at the end of the story, he said that he was invited to the group that he had done interviews with to talk about that private server. And, I know it's, 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 you know, dewy eyed optimist to think this way, but I, this is, in my mind, it would be most effective I, if we could figure out those rules for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. That we could just make better choices with it and not wait for someone to make those choices for us. Yeah, it's interesting how people sort of just want to follow the crowd, though, and the, you know, the power of, of influencers and the, and the power of mainstream and, you know, it's, I do think there's a, there's a trim, there's a lot of hope that we have in the long tail, you know, and being able to find each other and find people who are interested in, in more niche uh, interests, whether those are hobbies or, you know, professional uh, aspects of our jobs. But yeah, thanks uh, Peggy. Thanks you for sharing that article. And I think one of the ideas I have on that is helping students navigate. And I think you've got another article about digital footprint that I'd like maybe you to share uh, a little later. The culture war is so real. It is so vitriolic and it can be really tragic and painful. And I don't even have all the right words. It can be, it can be dangerous for folks to speak out um, on social media about very contentious issues. Yet, you know, as this article points out, and I firmly believe it, it's important to do, but you know, that, that looks different as an adult, um, than it does as a teenager. 
it, it, it probably should. And um, I think there's just a lot of conversations and work that we need to do around this. I think that we tend to want to still live in a fantasy world that somehow we're, I don't know, going to, going to prevent kids from using social media during school hours, uh, you know, during class. And therefore these aren't things that we really need to grapple with. And certainly we wouldn't want to be practicing them in school. You know, I I think there's just, I'm reading a a book called social media, which is a few years old, but um, it is really, um, you know, a, a call for why we need to be in the worlds of our kids and, and, you know, understanding what they're going into and dealing with and your comments lately about TikTok have, have got me along with conversations I'm having with my own students in the classroom, you know, got me thinking about, well, maybe, maybe I do need to be, you know, a little more on that platform. And I've got some article, an article to share about that um, as well. But anyway, that sounds like a great article and a great piece. Thank you for sharing it. And I think the good of social media, we cannot lose track of that. What you said about, you know, our connection as friends, uh, so many different relationships and points of learning that have just absolutely transformed my life in the last, you know, 20 years and continue to on a daily basis. And then there's this advocacy piece. I mean, would we have the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or so many different movements without social media? You know, if we didn't have cameras and and we didn't have someone, you know, video the the murder of George Floyd. I mean, there's a lot of different aspects to this. And and I'm sure there's some people that would prefer us not to not to have those things going on at all. But, you know, we need to we need to move the needle forward in so many different ways with respect to uh, human rights, with respect to representative democracy, with respect to to uh, the values of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I absolutely believe that. And I think social media uh, is and will continue to play a very important role in that. And it's not just the, the, the role of the main, you know, professional journalists and the mainstream media. They have important roles as the fourth estate, but we have important roles and we never know when we might need to step up because we've been a witness to something uh, and we have an opportunity to be able to share and, and tell a story. And I think that helping students and, and adults too navigate this world in terms of what we consume and what we choose to believe, but also what we choose to share and what we choose to create and you know, that point about using it for good. Um, that's really the point of the social media book. And she calls it moving from digital citizenship to digital leadership. But it really is about advocating um, for a more activist uh, sort of posture in schools with respect to, um, you know, social media. So um, it is by Jennifer Casa Todd. So shout out to Jennifer. I'm our librarian picked up that book and it's, like I said, I think it's a 2017 book. So it's like four years old. Oh my gosh. But lots of really good points in it. And it ties real closely with what you're saying in that article. Yeah. And then this one is, I just think interesting if, if you want to start seeing what the counterpoint to this looks like, but uh, Recode on, on April 5th did a deep dive into Elizabeth Warren's perspectives on breaking up antitrust and tech obviously is a huge part of this. Cause that's what she's mostly talking about. But um, uh, you know, she is, you know, gearing up to become a trust buster, right? Uh, uh, someone who, you know, really interested in breaking up big tech and thinks that both laws and our, 
uh, enforcement of those laws needs to change because of the the way big tech has really uh, perhaps not in a super great way changed our lives. So if you're interested in that topic and it's it's pretty deep dive into um, kind of a broader uh, framework that uh, Senator Warren is uh, thinking about going after, uh, you know, it, not just big tech, but big everything is what the, the title of the article. It's a it's a really, really good one. I think worth your time. Okay. Well, uh, tied into that, and this is a, a, a article about Meta Facebook. Um, I'll first share the link to how I learned about this. So I am now periodically listening to a podcast called Post Reports, and um, it, they're you know shorter summaries from the Washington Post. And it's you don't have to be a subscriber you know in order to listen. Um, but I but I learned about some of my. Um, my tech news that way. I really like to listen to, to NPR and a lot of times get, get uh, links that way. But this post reports was called a secret campaign against TikTok. And then I've also got the uh, original article link, um, which was from March 30th. And its headline is Facebook paid GOP firm to malign TikTok. <laughs> and so there is a question about the legality of this, but the bottom line is Boy, is Facebook ever resorting to dirty politics because there have been in the last few months these reports. And I heard a student at our school mention something about it as we, you know, we get to walk the chapel around the lake um, most days. And, and we're talking about this, these campaigns for kids doing something, stealing something from school, vandalizing something at school. There was one where you were, the kids were supposedly slapping teachers and videoing this, but these were, vi- these were kind of outlier events, but the emails and there's documentation proving that this firm that the largely uh, GOP, the Republican National Committee, um, the Donald Trump reelection campaign, um, conservative groups use this particular uh, media company and they make millions and millions of dollars every election cycle. These emails establish the fact that this company was working to get all kinds of journalists around the country and they were successful to amplify these stories and to then shine the light of negative publicity on TikTok, not on Facebook. And they basically, when they were confronted, said, yeah, I think, you know, they didn't deny it. They didn't, you know, say they didn't do this. They said, yeah, you know, TikTok needs to be, um, you know, put under the same scrutiny that we are. This is the kind of mudslinging that happens all the time in in politics where, you know, one particular candidate is going to get a lot of mud or try to get in and they'll get things that will shine negative light on their opponent. And then they're going to spend a lot of money to try to amplify that and get that in the media. Um, It's an I think it's a great case study for media literacy because we need to be savvy as individual citizens and Joe, you know, voter. But journalists need to be really savvy to this as well, right? Because the fact that we've got the, the you know, dirty tricks, uh, that Meta's engaging in this. And I think there's plenty of mud to go around, right? I mean, this, watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix. I mean, I'm, and I'm glad for you to mention that Elizabeth Warren article on Recode. I want to I really read this because I'm one of the things that I've thought, and again, we we gather these articles. We talk about this stuff every week. And, and my thought for this week is I am ready to start advocating for some specific change 
in this whole tech correction because I am personally feeling like I've been hand wringing myself too long without saying, okay, we need to take action. And this meta article about this TikTok thing, it's just freaking, ri- I'm going to knock my microphone over. It's just freaking <laughs> ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Now, was it illegal? I guess not. But I mean, if you want to, if you want some more fuel for the fire for not liking Facebook and for believing that Facebook has some dark and, and black moral you know, and here we are live streaming and using that platform for free saying this as my words Mark, are transcribed how you doing? for posterity. How are you doing, Zuck? Um, I mean, this is this is not the actions of a moral company and an ethical company to engage in this kind of of dirty tricks, um, you know, dirty tricks antics. So I but, I, you know, this is one of those things I heard about and it like connected dots because I have heard about these things. But oh, so you're saying that Meta slash Facebook has been paying, you know, a PR firm to push these things so that we'll have. Oh, and here's a new term. Have you heard of astroturfing? We've heard of grassroots campaigns. Oh, and this wasn't yeah. a grassroots campaign. It was an astroturf campaign because it was, you know, the whole thing wasn't fabricated, but it was definitely amplified way, way beyond what was reasonable, playing on the fears that parents have and then, you know, feeding into this narrative. The kids these days are on this TikTok and it's just so bad, you know, or the world's just going down the toilet. Anyway, it just plays into that, but also misrepresents reality. But then it also amplifies it in the larger you know, conversations in both social media and mainstream media. And guess what? Then there are more kids. You know, there's literally an eighth grader walking around our lake today talking about, you know, something that evidently they were trying to video or something that they were trying to do at school. And it's like, what? And it was on TikTok. So anyway, did you know that? Had you heard that part of the the story before? No, uh, I, I haven't. And what's so interesting to me about all this is that, um, you know, when it when it comes to Facebook versus TikTok, right? I get why Facebook has a vested interest in um um in in, in maligning TikTok. What I don't get is the they they went to a conservative media company to do the dirty work, right? And that's the part that that I find to be so interesting because, like, if 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 there is a political bend to this, right, following the logical conclusion, the perception must be that TikTok is somehow better for left wing uh, 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 creators than right wing creators, while Facebook is 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 in the other direction. And I don't know. I I I don't really feel like there's enough information. Um, um, uh, I, I don't know how quite to put this, but the bottom line is that it, it's just really interesting to watch these these platforms try to keep an audience and how desperate they are to make sure they stay relevant. And and as that post reports podcast, um, you know, talks about, there was maybe we had this vision in the past of really beneficent lovely Steve Wozniak type folks working in their garage, working to save uh, the world, just do to do great things. You know, Wozniak is a great guy. He was and is, but we're talking now billions and billions of dollars, 
tons of folks and companies that their livelihoods ride on all this. And so the stakes are really, really high. And so there's some really dirty fighting that is happening. I mean, TikTok is on the rise. Facebook is going down. Um, I'm going to read that Elizabeth Warren article. Um, I, I'm personally, again, I'm just, this is my thought this week, but I'm, I'm like ready. I think I'm ready to donate. Is it EFF or who do I need to, you know, get involved in, in, in advocating and donating for to, to get some action on this. And on that note, another Washington Post article that I want to share, uh, this is an op-ed uh, and it was from March 30th from the Washington Post. And it's called enough failures. We need a federal privacy law. And so this is a really good summary of the legislation that has been proposed and then legislation that's still on the table to try and take a look at uh, privacy and whether or not we should have a federal privacy law. What should that look like? And so, um, you know, it's obviously our, our politics can be frustrating for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, we just, we talk about gridlock. We talk, there's, there's a whole lot of reasons why, uh, you know, Washington, but a lot of people tend to be very frustrated with, uh, with Washington, DC, <clears throat> but it does seem that there's been so much talk about this. We need there to be some movement. And, and I think this editorial was, was right on target because part of this is privacy, right? There should be some boundaries and limits to what companies can do with our private information and this wild west that we continue to have uh, with respect to privacy, you know, needs to, needs to be reined in. Absolutely. A little bit of ranting tonight. Folks. Yeah, a little um, bit for, for just, both of us. That's lively. okay. Shall we go to the more traditional tech news? Well, uh, could you do one more for us? Can you do that one on digital footprint? Sure. Yeah, yeah. That, this is a really wonderful article. Um, so to be clear, I believe that one of the early users of the words digital footprint was Dr. Fryer. So uh, this is something that, that's right up his background in Alley. But um, this article talks about how people are pushing back. Again, this is a CNET article, I should say, from April 4th. Bree Fowler is writing um, that people are becoming a little more conscious about their, you know, the amount of data available to them. And she talks to a guy named Ken Crum, who uh, is a 66-year-old Texan who just moved to a small town in his retirement. And he was getting tired of all of his... Um, uh, his personal information being used to target ads. And so he did everything that I think Wes and I would come up with as ideas. Uh, he quit using Google in favor of DuckDuckGo. Um, he deleted the, uh, the tracking prone app crap in his words from the phone. This is, uh, uh, Fowler's words and did what I'm sure would be the recommendation of a lot of privacy websites and being able to do that. And what he figured out was that it didn't really matter. Um, because there's so much data on you anyways that, you know, there's data on you from sometimes publicly available databases. Sometimes there are, uh, uh, groups that, that are trying to tweak things like, uh, web rankings and search engines to try to get information up to the top to sell you ads. But the bottom line is, is that there are, uh, you know, legitimate, uh, legitimate in question marks, uh, or in quotation marks, uh, legitimate data farmers who are doing things like buying social uh, uh, customer data, uh, stolen customer data off the internet, um, utilizing uh, scraping methods off of social media, uh, and uh, extremist groups, cyber criminals also engage in all these processes. Uh, the, the, the concept of 
harassing people online, doxing them, posting personal information about folks. Um, this is now extremely commonplace, you know, around uh, uh, the internet. And the bottom line is, is that your personal data, whether you want it there or not, is probably on the internet and probably in a lot of databases that aren't very well maintained. Yeah. Hey, and if if we're not going to take a stand on these kind of things, you know, fancying ourselves as somewhat well-informed on these topics, who is? Uh, I, I just think the, you know, we got to be careful talking about politics, of course, anytime we're in the classroom and we're in front of students, um, we, want, we need to be, you know, uh, I don't think we should be neutral on, let's say, representative democracy and human rights. Let's be all for those things, you know, but it, when it comes to legislation and it comes to political parties and things like that, we, we got to be careful. Um, but at the same time, um, from a I'm kind of a disciple of Paulo Freire, who talks all about teaching as a political act. Uh, I think there are inherently political um, aspects to this. And I think that we need to consider, especially the privacy rights that, you know, and, and this idea that perhaps all of our rights or most of our rights, you know, kind of really do stem and start from privacy. Um, so if, if anybody listening to this has ideas and thoughts or you've got, you know, beyond, obviously, Jason's given us a great article on the Elizabeth Warren um, you know, campaign and, and there's other, other uh, links that we've had, but anyway, I'm just, I'm interested in moving beyond my, wringing my hands. So yeah. perhaps we'll, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that actually, cause I, I couldn't agree with you more. But on that note, we don't want to talk about the tech correction all night long. <laughs> and if you haven't noticed, ladies and gentlemen, there's just been this special sparkle uh, around Dr. Neifer the last two weeks as we've really just got into the Microsoft, the Google, and the Apple news. So let's just go there now. Where would you, where yeah. would you like to see this next? Yeah, so lots of interesting stuff going on in the nerdier side of, of, of technology. Uh, let's start with some Google articles. Um, uh, there's two articles that basically talk about the same thing, but I want to pull different things from them. The first one is from The Verge on April 1st. Um, Google Docs will start nudging some users to write less dumbly is their headline, which I thought was pretty clever. Um, and in fact, if you go to the comments of the article, they actually show the, I think it's the, the Slack discussion where they were trying to tweak the headline, which it, in that itself is hilarious. So shout out to, to the writers at The Verge. But um, the uh, Google Docs will start utilizing some Grammarly-like features. And for those of you that don't use Grammarly, I love it so much that I purchased the pro version of it. I pay, I think it's like $10 a month to get access to Grammarly because it's a, been a very important part of my job. Um, and in all my side projects, I write quite a bit and I'm not a very good writer. Um, I'm, a, I'm an acceptable writer, but I'm not a great writer by any stretch of the imagination. It really helps me there. Two things about that article. One, they mentioned Sherlocking. Yeah. <laughs> and so you remember, Sherlock was this thing that Apple put into the operating system that basically, you know, stole function from a third party and like, hey, now everybody has it. So it's sort of like they're doing that. Google is kind of doing that to Grammarly the way that Apple did. I don't remember who they did. The right. Well, was it called Sherlock? I guess was. Well, that's what they called yeah. it. Apple called that feature Sherlock. The other thing, though, and I think this goes beyond Grammarly, is it's actually going to suggest inclusive language. Is that something that Grammarly does already, or is that, or Google's kind of taking it further? Not that I know of, but maybe I already use inclusive language. Like, yeah. That's so I mean, I personally thought that was a wonderful and good thing. 
Super interesting, though, right, about the ways that values yeah. are intersecting with technology, right? Because not everybody is agreeing we should be using inclusive language, but that is going to become a native. Well, okay, I think you have to be paying. Don't you have to be in a paid tier? So if you're on just like free version of Google Workspace, I don't think you're going to get this. I think you have to be on like the the one, at least the first bump up, yeah. um, you know, paying. Well, that's the second article, right? Okay. Uh, Chrome Good. Unboxed reports, uh, same article, but focuses on the fact that it's only going to be by selected, um, only by selected tiers of workspace. I think this also means it's not available, um, to, to personal Google users, right? So that's super interesting, but the tone and style components will be available only to business standard, business plus, enterprise standard, inter- or enterprise plus, and education plus. Not available for, you know, a variety of things. Uh, word warnings is slightly more available, um, and includes the edu- education fundamental, uh, education standard and education plus tier. So everyone gets that in the education world, but it is super interesting that they're making that differential because we had talked about previously when Google moved towards this that, you know, there were clear advantages to having the, um, the the step up one the one that costs in the education world but like for example in my organization we just couldn't justify that cost um and uh especially since at this point we don't even provide email addresses to students anymore local schools do that for us but it means that you know we would be paying only for adults and so uh, uh it would be relatively expensive to do that uh, to get the features but if they end up aiming more of these value adds to that middle tier I could see a scenario where that suddenly starts to make sense. I have to say, I absolutely love Grammarly. It's been a really critical part in helping me be a better, better writer. And we have talked about this. This has literally happened in the last two years during the, the pandemic where Google has made a fundamental shift instead of just, hey, free products, free for education, everything's free, you know, and, and no ads for kids. And that part has not changed in terms of the ads. Um, Google is now monetizing, you know, what used to be Google Apps and is now Google Workspace. And what they are aspiring to do, in my outsider opinion, you know, is normalize the subscription so that that's just part of your school budget. You're like, yeah, we got to, you know, we're going to have to have our Google license and so much per head, you know, whether it's a per teacher or per student. Um, that's kind of the world we're in overall with ed tech. That's what everyone's sort of dream is is that, you know, we've all got individual and family subscription budgets and our organizations have subscription budgets. And so these companies want their service to be added in, you know, whether that's the Apple, you know, services for music, Spotify, Netflix, blah, 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 personally, or whether it's looking at the enterprise, a Microsoft 365 license, uh, um, you know, up uh, whatever these tiers are called for Google Workspace. Um that's what they want. And so um, it's important to well, think about what those what those features are and what your users need. And again, it's a moving target because don't just say we've never had that before. We'll never need that. These things are changing. And, and so sometimes the spending needs to change, too. 
Well, and the perception of value is 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 a, is a weird thing because, um, you know, as an example of this, I do subscribe to uh, it's it's one of my it's one of my little side gigs. I have a domain and a Google uh, workspace of a subscription for pay six dollars a month for it. it works really well. It's been it's been very useful. I like segregating email into different email addresses and projects, um, but. $6 a month to me doesn't sound that bad, but then if we start talking about out loud me paying for Google email, I'm like, ew, I would never pay six months, uh, dollars a month for that. Yet I pay for it for my, 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 my small business address. I pay $15 a month for Spotify. I pay uh, $5 for this video thing or, or that audio thing. And, you know, uh, my wife and I both have, uh, admit that we have to do kind of a cleanse of our subscriptions every couple of months. We do a look at our, um, our, our credit card bill to see which prescriptions we're actually using. And there's, you know, part of our conversation here has been, it's not about canceling them. It's just about checking them, right? That, you know, are we using it? If we're not, get rid of them uh, and, and and don't deal with that. But the perception of value is very interesting. And since I've been a Gmail user since, two, was it 2003, 2004? One of the two, when that started, I've been, since I was first able to get an invite when they were doing an invite system back That's in the day. Right. Um, and I had the same email address as I did in, in, in 2000, whatever. So yeah, pretty interesting how that plays out. Well, and shout out to mint. I know you've talked about trim as a service that can help, you know, trim some of your bills. Um, but mint, which of course is a complete surveillance capitalism service, right? Because if you're putting in all your bills and everything, just be guaranteed that they're selling this to third parties. And that's part of that opaque cloud that, that that other article was talking about that guy was trying to escape and there's no escape. But anyway, uh, this is a notification I got two hours ago on my phone from Mint. You know how much you're paying in subscriptions. Tap to find out because Mint knows when you connect your bank accounts, when you are sharing all this data with them, you know, it's a, it's a vast treasure trove. But on the other hand, there's also, you know, it's there. We live complex lives. And so if these tools are able to help us, um, you know, t- have a better audit and take better stock of where our resources are going. And then also, you know, periodically consider whether or not these are our priorities. And this is what we really need to be, uh, you know, paying for. Those are those are good things to do. Um, Peggy George has mentioned and put into the chat a link uh, saying that Microsoft Office um, has a lifetime Mac Home and Business uh, 2021 license and it's 85% off. And so it was just 50 bucks. And so she's got the link on Apple insider to take advantage of that. And um, yeah, that's, it's, it's been super interesting to see how Apple has given stuff away, but then Microsoft is charged, whether that's for operating systems or of course, you know, for office and um, you know, kind of how they've, how they've continued to, to make some changes there. So I am thankful that I have basically, my days of using Microsoft Office are, are at this point over, but you know, who knows that that may change. You know, I may enter the state of North Carolina and they may say, you got to use Office West. What is yep. this? What is this Google Doc thing? But I don't think so. Um, and, and I already, since we just spent 10 minutes talking about that one Google article, um, I'm going to do a couple, couple quick updates and some of the stuff we could do. Um, uh, a little later. Uh, here's a very nerdy update. Google Docs uh, is allowing Markdown support. 
And for those that are unaware of what Markdown is, it's a it's it's basically um, a, a way to type in formatting while you're typing, right? So it's a really easy way to keep lists, to do headers. Um, but if you're kind of a, a power user, a lot of people uh, uh, love Markdown because it allows you to very quickly format your document while you're typing it without having to mess with uh, even key or even uh, key commands like, you know, alt command, shift, et cetera. So it's really interesting stuff. That's not going to appeal to a very huge audience, but the audience it appeals to, they're going to love that because uh, the Markdown people are super into Markdown. Um, and then I, a, a bit of an update uh, from last week, um, I mentioned in the new Chrome that there's a side panel um, and um, th- there's a, a feature coming that deals with private notes, um, which I believe allows you to type uh, uh, notes into the sidebar, uh, which I think is could be an interesting student tool. Um, but also... Um, uh, they're going to change reader mode, which is the kind of uh, uh, nice uh, formatted one for reading, to something that they're going to call read anything, which that being built in the browser, I think is, is pretty great. Um, I, I, I It feels like that that there's been a lot of activity in Google Docs world in the last two years um, that that maybe the, the pace of the increase has quickened a little bit, uh, or increase in new features has quickened a little bit. I like where it's going. I think it, it becomes a more powerful platform every day. I've got a Google article in there. Um, this one is from Mashable on March 31st. New Google highly cited label focuses on tackling misinformation, highlighting original reporting. This reminds me a little bit of Google Scholar. One of the things, incidentally, not that I'm, I'm not going to ISTE this year and I kind of, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not as wildly enthusiastic about ISTE as I may have been at one point in my life in the past. But um, one of the things you have to do for ISTE proposals is, you know, cite, um, you know, research and, and, uh, and, and have citations. And so anyway, that's one of the times I've been using Google Scholar to find, you know, articles and, and research that supports the topic that I'm going to be wanting to discuss. And, you know, right at the top, how many people have cited, you know, this particular scholar's work. And so that is being brought into news results. And um, the hope is that that's going to help, you know, combat some disinformation and help people get better information. And by the way, International Fact Checking Day was April 2nd. Did you miss it? Yep. I did. Yeah. This article mentions um, <laughs> I, I celebrate that every day, Dr. Fryer. But uh, yeah, there's also an interesting uh, Google Unboxed article that I actually put under tech correction. But uh, I really like these these layers on top of the search engine. Uh, you know, in the end, uh, you know, I, I hope we can we can teach our students and teach each other how great it is to you know to look up things and do the kind of uh, I hate the, these kinds of terms, but the 21st century way of looking at these search engines. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, and I'll repeat it because I think I do every week now that searching is not an information gathering exercise. It's a critical thinking exercise. And if if, if Google can layer things on top of that. Um, uh, uh, that, that, that helps the readers make those calls. I think that's really great. And by the way, that's also um, using the, the the mass of people, right? Using the, um, what's the term I'm looking for, Dr. Fryer? Using the hive mind. Uh, uh, or outsourcing works too. Crowd, crowd, crowdsource. Crowd, I'm sorry, crowdsourcing works too, to, you know, help do that for you. And, you know, even, you know, wrong things can be cited quite a bit, right? Like, I think that's a, 
um, uh, an important thing to remember, but I love this, this idea. I think it's a really smart and clever on Google's part to go in this direction. All right. You want to do some Microsoft stuff? Yeah, a couple quick things here. Um, first, um, we've talked about how, you know, Windows 11 has, has, uh, uh been kind of slowly improving, um, uh, its feature set and, uh, the file explorer, which, um, I've only used Windows 11 for maybe a total of three or four hours. Uh, uh, probably needed some updates, but there are some new things happening there, including, um, uh, tabs, more, fa- more places to put favorites and also a new homepage. That's interesting news. Um, the one I, th- I, um, uh, thought was most interesting in this article group was The Verge had an article about how Windows 11 is going to start adding, um, more features, um, related to, um, uh, like video conferencing, but they're building it into the operating system, not into the individual conferencing apps. So in essence, it's kind of embracing the the notion of um of the features that that uh, meets and zoom are taking on but you can do it on any platform uh uh you can modify your webcam in any way and I, it that seems so like thoughtful of microsoft right this notion that's going to build in tools understanding that clearly we're spending much more time in video conferencing so why not bake these features directly into the operating system now i've never heard of this feature before that that article mentions it's called eye contact it says eye contact uses ai to automatically adjust where your eyes are looking in a video call to ensure you always appear to be making eye contact with the camera it works well if you're reading notes, if the camera lens is off to the side, or if you're just trying to watch a football game during a meeting. <laughs> hey, Proctorio's going to hate that, right? Because, you know, they're all oh, about yeah. AI and seeing if your eyes are where they shouldn't be. Man, that's wild. Yeah, so I, I, I thought that seemed pretty innovative, actually. In fact, that felt almost Apple-like, right? This notion of kind of baking things into the operating system in a, a kind of future-looking way. But I thought that was pretty clever. Um, and, and worth a mention. And then um, the last one, and just because we've reported on this in the past, um, uh, Microsoft is going to relent a little bit and allow you to change browsers with one click again. We've reported that a lot of users were pretty ticked off with early updates of Windows 11. I should say early versions of Windows 11 because um, it it changed your browser to Edge. Uh, if you didn't choose right the first time and you chose Edge as your browser... It was a, you had to go and reassociate every kind of thing a web browser opens up, which is dozens of things. And so it's back to one click. So I think that's the right call on Microsoft's part. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm not re-entering higher ed at this point to do uh, research and publishing, but um, I would be interested to know how many districts are having their student devices as well as teacher devices and staff devices so locked down that individuals are not able to add another browser. I think it really is helpful to be able to have a second browser, whether that's Firefox or Safari on the Mac or, or you can do edge. Um, so anyway, that's, that's good that Microsoft is doing that. I'm just makes me also think about, okay, does everyone have the freedom to, you know, put another browser on, not if you're on a Chromebook, but if you're on another device, that's, I don't know. I, I'd just be interested to know what that, what that number is. Yep. Me too. Well, we have, about, Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I have another quick one I could do before we. Yeah, of course, please. 
So this is a kind of a story from being family IT guy, and uh, I believe that Dr. Fryer is also a family IT uh, uh, guy. Um, I support one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine users um, uh, in addition to myself, and then what also the support I give to colleagues in the office. So for me, um, there is a um, uh, there are some things I've noticed uh, over time. And in fact, I've even been called a patient person before in context of helping out with, uh, with family IT. But my mom called me last night and was kind of, um, uh, up in arms about that her Firefox downloads were not working the way they used to. And first of all, impressed with my mom that she continues to use Firefox, even though uh, Chrome is available. And I've even encouraged her to use Chrome in the past, but she is a ardent Firefox user. I should also say one of the reasons why I'm a nerd in 2022 is my mom brought a personal computer uh, into our home in the early 1980s. Uh, it was a K-Pro that ran the CPM operating system. So we're talking about hardcore nerd, right? This isn't, this isn't a Commodore 64, an Apple II, uh, uh, a TRS-80. Uh, it was a K-Pro two running CPM um, on its 10 meg hard drive. And um, that uh, uh, is uh, uh, a part of the reason why I'm a nerd today. My mom has a lot of experience on computers, but uh, but it wasn't working. And I thought that the issue was that she had maybe instructed it to not give her options with downloading anymore. Well, I, I was able to do a screen sharing session with her and she showed me what was up. And I did a little Googling and found out that in version 98 of Firefox, they have changed the way they do downloads. And uh, uh, first of all, I can't. Um, uh, uh, I can't understand why you um, uh, uh, wouldn't want to uh, uh, give users options still. Like, that seems really bizarre to me. But then secondarily, it just helps prove how fast this tech moves. And my mom literally said on the phone last night is that, you know, I wish they would tell you when they when they changed features like that. And I, I, I agree with that. Um uh, other articles I could have shared tonight talk about how iOS, what are we on, 15 now, right? So 16 is the new one, that all these changes they're expecting for iOS 16, iOS 15 version 1, or 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, all had changes, right? Some of them were really subtle, but changes, this stuff is always changing, always adapting, and I can imagine that's befuddling for some people and, um, you know, serving in context of, of, of family, uh, uh, IT person, um, the bottom line is, um, uh, you know, it, it is a big job and I understand why some people don't want to keep up on it, I guess is my larger point. Absolutely. I'll share one quick one and then we'll, we'll do some geeks of the week and we'll have to move some of these articles like our Ukraine war and some of these others, maybe the next week. Um, I put this under the miscellaneous category. It could actually be media literacy. It is from um, a source called Grid News, which I've not heard of before, but it's called What We Can Learn from People Who Take the Flat Earth Theory Seriously. Um, and as longtime listeners of the podcast will know, I'm really into a unit um, called Conspiracies and Culture Wars, where we look at the moon landing and the fact that folks, you know, some people believe that was a hoax and we Use that to learn the SIFT web literacy strategy. Well, this is an article from April 4th um, that is an interview with Kelly Wheel. She's a journalist for the Daily Beast, and she has a book called Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. 
And that book and then this article really talks about how the resurgence of conspiracy theories really started to kick in about 2015. And with social media really being the key, you know, sort of fuel for the fire, um, the ways in which there is some kind of element maybe of interest in conspiracy theories among just about everybody. Um, but how this really almost gets into theological and religious beliefs and people that just want to reject, you know, all, you know, authority, but just the way in which social media has just given a platform and the algorithms have, have played into that. This has obviously, as she says, you know, greater implications to just flat earth stuff. I mean, we've got vaccine uh, conspiracy, you know, vaccine um, misinformation, disinformation. We've got people discrediting representative democracy. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of ways that this has an impact, but I thought this was a pretty interesting article and definitely something of interest to anybody interested in media literacy and thinking about conspiracy theories and talking about that kind of stuff with students. That book looks, looks pretty good. So Dr. Neifer, do you have, well, I'm trying to take the lead here. It's your lead. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I think it's time for our geek of the week, which is, uh, a link or something other that we're sharing, uh, you know, for the geekdom of it all. Uh, Dr. Fryer, what is your geek of the week? I have one, and it is a video I made yesterday called Preparing Book Creator Ebooks to Print on Lulu.com. So the last five years I've worked with our um, senior English teacher who teaches a, a creative writing elective where the kids create children's picture books. And they, in the past, just made sort of like Kinko's and whatever, you know, printed versions that were, so, were pretty expensive. But five years ago, we started to use Book Creator and Lulu, um, but it is necessary, at least we've not figured out a, a workaround, uh, to do some kind of tweaks where you're uh, using the iPad version to make make a margin. Well, and, and you could do Adobe Acrobat probably, but you've got to have exact margins when you use a print-on-demand service like Lulu. And so anyway, I made a video about that, and I'm going to be handing that project off to one of my colleagues to assist with next year. And so anyway, if that's at all of interest to you, I absolutely love, love, love helping students and teachers and really anyone of any age uh, write books and, and share books. And it's so cool uh, to be a published author and to have a book that you hold in your hand and you, you know, and in this case, these 12th graders go read to our kindergartners and our pre-K kids. And now they're on the iPad, too. And so these teachers can have every book and every kid reads it in their own voice, you know. And so, yes, the printed book is cool, but. I actually think the electronic version that has the voice of the student on it is is even cooler. So that is my Geek of the Week. How about you? I would like to share an article um, from How to Geek. This is 30-plus web-based alternatives for traditional desktop apps for Chromebooks and PCs, although I'm more interested in the Chromebook part. But as I think the web becomes more important, and especially if you're in a district that's gone all in and either Chromebooks or uh, is locking you down um, for uh, uh, whatever reason and you're not allowed to install apps, thinking of the web-based alternatives as a good place to uh, you know do, do what you you need to do without an app is a good place to go. So that's a how-to geek article I'm sharing tonight. That's well, great. Wes, where can we find you on the internets? I am W Fryer on Twitter. Go to westfryer.com and you'll find lots of links that I updated as I was applying for jobs this last year. So the website's been refreshed and there's lots of links. How about you? I am on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. 
But this here is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights at uh, 8 p.m. Uh, Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Central, soon to be at, a, or I should say, a programming note that we anticipate uh, later this year to move to 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, which is where uh, uh, Dr. Fryer's new uh, time zone. But we'll get to that a little bit down the road. Uh, if you can't join us live, although I wish you would, um, you can find us wherever find your podcasts are aggregated, YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter. We tweet out things. Um, and, and of course, if you have an established app, you can uh, find us there. In fact, I have yet to see a, uh, a podcast and app that a new podcast app that I've downloaded in the last five years that doesn't have our podcast. Uh, thank you so much for checking in with us tonight. Stay safe, stay savvy. We hope to see you next time on the Edtech Situation Room. Adios.